Eva and the Great Worms In the early days, the people within the cities had no way of effectively moving about them. They could walk, but some cities were sprawling. It was nearly impossible to make your way to your job, your home, or your family and friends. This persisted until a clever mortal by the name of Eva came up with a plan. The mortals walked on the surface of the earth, where all the buildings were. But perhaps they could walk beneath it and bypass the cluttered infrastructure of the land. People laughed at Eva. How could they possibly dig out enough dirt for the city to walk through? Eva brought their attention to the worms in the desert. The worms were giant, the size of the tallest skyscrapers a bod ever made. They tunneled endlessly through the sand. If she could lead one of the worms to the city and train them, she could create the subterranean pathways that they always dreamed of. So she walked out into the desert. She brought with her some leftover oils from the city's feasts, and she walked into the sands, pouring the oil on the ground behind her. She took heavy steps to get the attention of the worms, who then saw the oil as an indication of food. They followed her trail back to the city. Once they were close, she tried to saddle the creatures. Unfortunately, this did not work. The worms dug haphazardly around the edge of the town and then left. Her plan had failed. Ava climbed down inside one of the holes. She was hoping to find that maybe they dug close enough to the city to be of help. Maybe this would make it easier for the mortals themselves to dig the tunnels. What she found instead was a kingdom. Awaro's kingdom. The land beneath land. She walked through the massive caverns, past underground rivers, and thousands of workers digging away. Eventually, someone noticed that she shouldn't have been there, and she was brought to their jails. There she explained that she was just trying to help her city. She just wanted to make tunnels to help her people move. This caught the ear of a guard. Her mission made its way up the ranks, all the way to Awaro. Awaro, god of ground, was a massive god, larger than most others. He was wide and stout, and dirt filled his wrinkles and cuts. He made his way to the prison to talk to this surface mortal. She was scared at first. She had never been in the presence of a god, but she did tell Awaro of her plan and the worms. Awaro laughed, a large, hearty laugh that shook all of the earth above him. How cute that the mortals thought that they could tame the great worms. Awaro told Eva he liked her plan. It was smart, even if the execution was poor. He agreed to help her to have his subjects build the tunnels on one condition. Eva could not tell anyone who really built the tunnels. Not a single mortal, and definitely not a single god. If asked, 
She would say that the worms built it, that she was able to tame them after all. Ava hastily agreed, not thinking of the implications of her arrangement. In just one day, the tunnels were built. Ava returned to her city triumphant. Idola, goddess of cities, heard of this new development. She went to Ava to ask how she had managed such a great feat. Ava said that she trained the great worms of the desert. Idola was impressed. She asked Ava if she would travel to the other cities to provide this service. Ava was hesitant, but on Idola's insistence, she agreed. That evening, Ava made her way back to Awaro's kingdom. She asked Awaro for help, that Idola wanted these tunnels beneath every city. A grin erupted across Awaro's face. He said he would help the mortal, but the same conditions would apply. Now, most cities have these tunnels. They have been developed to house trains and other means of transport. People use these tunnels blissfully unaware of the hands that built it or the avenue it has given Awaro and his subjects. Hello, and welcome to Newton's Dark Room Presents Main Street Mythology. Over the course of the last year, NDR member Julia Sawbone traveled across the American countryside. She collected legends etched into bathroom stalls, spray-painted on freight cars, and mumbled by workers in alleys. She brought these legends back to us, and now we bring them to you. From Newton's Dark Room, this is Main Street Mythology. Ivium and the Internet One day, Philum, god of knowledge, presented a new idea to the Pantheon. He was charged with keeping all of human knowledge in the library where he lived. It was very expansive and wonderful, but not practical for the mortals. They had no way of accessing the information inside. He proposed an interconnected web of information that would allow all mortals to read of the knowledge Philem kept inside of his library. All of the gods agreed without thinking much about it. One of the gods saw an opportunity to punish her wayward followers. Ivium, goddess of entertainment, had created the television as a means of escaping the harsh realities of the world. The mortals, however, had begun using the invention as a means of tackling the world's hardships, whether real or fictional. Ivium tried to shut down the practice, but the mortals began making offerings directly to Messick, god of satellites, as a way of keeping their stations afloat. Ivium was furious and had been looking for a chance to humiliate the stations. Philem's invention would be the perfect tool for this. Just as she expected, the mortals began presenting information found in Philem's library. Sometimes, they would learn something urgent and noteworthy and would discuss the topic on the news. Other times, they would dedicate entire hours to explaining a more complex or wondrous topic. Ivium grew to hate Philem's web 
and its truthful prevalence in her fantastical televisions. Ivium came up with a plan. Ivium sat at a typewriter, the same typewriter which had crafted her most revered works of fiction. She began writing an article, styled in the same way as those found in the library. It was titled, Five Reasons Why Plants Are Killing Your Family. She pulled the article from her typewriter, put on soft shoes, and made her way to the back side of the library. Ivium reached her hand up to a back window. Having learned a lesson from Strato's escape, Philum had barred the windows and locked them. This did not stop Ivium. Knowing the large scale of the library and knowing Philum would be busy with his invention, Ivium simply picked up a loose brick and threw it through the window. She climbed inside, cutting herself only a little. She found a nice shelf, one that looked relatively unattended to, and placed her article on it. She snuck back out and waited for the news the next day. Sure enough, all across radio and television were stories about the dangers of plants. The article claimed that plants eat dirt. Dirt was just broken down waste. In fact, plants grew better when feces and corpses were placed at their feet. When you were eating a plant, you were eating everything the world had discarded. This did an effective job of creating a fear of plants. People began cutting them from their diet, solely relying on meats, many not thinking of what their meat was eating. This caused a worldwide epidemic of sicknesses. People's bodies were not prepared to handle living on meat alone. People died, and Ivium laughed. The mortals believed anything they saw. This would surely teach them to lose their trust in the television and return their attention to the escapism Ivium provided. This was not the case. Instead, in the face of hardship, the mortals relied more on the information of the television. They began using it to test and communicate ideas, trying to find things that would minimize the damage of their new plantless life. Ivium, having pushed the mortals closer to what she had desperately tried to destroy, was pacing in her office. She needed to find a way to fix this, a way to undermine the trust of the television, while also stopping the worldwide plague she had brought upon them. This was when she heard her name echoing through the city. It was Philum. He was angry and searching for Ivium. She had entered into one of the rooms in his library to find broken glass scattered across the floor. After scouring through the entire room and reorganizing everything, he found something that didn't belong in the realm of human knowledge. It was the article that Ivium had written. Ivium's eyes darted across the room, looking for somewhere she could escape. That was when the door broke in. Philum, a typically reserved man, was standing in the doorway, nostrils flaring. He was large and hairy. Some say he could even take Webby in a fight. Ivium knew she would not be able to escape him. Philum dragged Ivium into the meeting hall. 
He slammed her down in a chair and walked back to her camera. He told her to say it was all a lie, that she had tried to fool the mortals of Earth, and that plants do not actually kill you. He then struggled for several seconds, trying to figure out how to turn on the camera. Ivium tried to stand to help him, but Philem demanded she stay seated. Eventually, the camera was on, and Ivium's confession would begin. It took longer than expected. Ivium was very reluctant to admit wrongdoing. It took Philem asking very pointed questions to get the truth out of her. Most of the world was watching as Ivium confessed her crimes and refuted the claim that plants are bad for you. All across the earth, mortals tried to understand the situation. Some were angry at Ivium for her lies. Others were relieved that they could be healthy again. Some people missed Ivium's announcement. To this day, they believe that plants are harmful and they preach this train of thought to anyone who would listen. Most would find this ordeal humiliating. Ivium, however, was smiling. She may have been clever, but she was no global mastermind. What she was, was lucky. The mortals of the earth, after having found out they had been lied to, grew wary of their televisions. They did not discredit it completely, but they began questioning the information it presented. Though Ivium had humiliated herself in front of gods and mortals alike, she had succeeded in undermining the fruits of her own labors. Carley and Doty. Carley had been told about Doty, the goddess of waste, who lived on an island of trash far off the coast. Doty was an important and wealthy god, but she could not make the meetings that the Pantheon held. Carley had never met Doty. She had only heard stories, stories of her resourcefulness, of her benevolent ruling. Carley was fascinated with Doty. Kali would often climb up onto her skyscraper and peer out towards Doty's island. Kali spent much of her time there. If she was lucky, Doty would be walking along the beach. Doty always walked with a straight back. Her feet moved precisely as she walked, almost like a dance. The sharp coastal wind would carry her hair behind her, her patchy white dress radiant against the landscape of waste around her. Once, during dinner, Kole asked her mother about Doty. Idola spoke with great admiration of the goddess of waste. When Doty was very young, her father, Yetodi, passed away. He was a massive man and very callous. He was respected, but not well-liked. Yetodi taught his daughter about ruling this land of waste. His lessons were short and hopeless. This was their job, and it was not a good one. Padote was still quite young. Yetodi passed away. That was the last time Idola had seen Doty on the mainland. She was just a small orphaned girl of garbage. The Pantheon debated for many days over who would oversee the island. In the end, no one wanted to take on the responsibility. Doty was taken back to the island and placed in charge. The poor girl was so compassionate, even then, she saw how horribly her father had treated the subjects of their land. She decided to start construction on a castle. 
Doty built the first room, the ballroom, herself. She found pieces of glass, metallic sheets, and fancy broken tiles. She would collect anything that could be added to the floor to give it the rainbow sheen it is now known for. The subjects were confused at first, believing that she was incompetent, unable to run the island properly. Until finally, Doty revealed her project. She invited all of the subjects on the island to a dance held in that ballroom. She wore a patchy white dress that she had fashioned for herself, and her subjects rejoiced. That was the first time Doty had ever seen them smile. Now she holds those dances regularly. Life is still difficult out there, but the compassion and respect that Doty gives her subjects has turned the island from a place of rot to a place of rebirth. Idola prays that Doty was truly one of the most remarkable members of the Pantheon. Kale certainly thought so. She imagined what it would be like to attend one of those dances. She pictured Doty walking down the stairs in her white dress, perfect and beaming. She could hear the music bouncing around as the subjects of the island whooped and hollered boots smacking against the floor in time. She could feel the warmth of the sun reflected in the glass in the floor, bathing the whole room in colored lights. When Kale imagined this, she would often dance around her rooftop, her arms hanging where she hoped Doty would one day be. On one such night, Kale decided to write a letter. This letter was tame. It was an introduction of herself, an invitation to watch the city skyline four nights from now. She signed her name, took this message, and went looking for a container to seal it in. She was hoping to find a bottle or a pot or something meant for this kind of travel, but instead she found an old floral printed tea kettle. Kale stuffed the note inside and set the kettle in the ocean. It carried the note away towards the island of waste. Kale got straight to work on her big show. Doty received the letter later that day. She happened to be walking on the beach when she heard the kettle clack against the sides of the dock. She picked it up and felt something move inside. She opened it to find the letter. Her heart felt so light that it might carry her away. You see, when Kole made her light to win the attention of the moon, she really caught the eye of Doty. Doty loved Kole's lights and she would often wander the beach of her island at sunset to catch the magnificent things light up the city when darkness came. She loved those lights, and she thought the world of Kale. Now this goddess from across the ocean, someone she had never spoken to before, was sending her a message. Doty could hardly contain her excitement, and she bounded back to her room in the castle. She hung the letter on her wall. On the mainland, Kale was nervous. She had placed one of her lights in every window in her building. Attached to each light was a cloth, which was hooked up to a rope. This rope ran to the top of the building to Kale's hands. She practiced for many days, always making sure the sun was out to drown out her early practices. The fourth day came, and Kale let out a heavy breath, clutching the ropes in her hands. On the island, Doty stood, 
Her subjects were on the docks working around her. She stared at the city. She did not look away. She barely even blinked. She did not want to miss what Collie had in store. Collie pulled up her hands, revealing some of the lights. The lights created a picture. It was of two people holding each other. Collie maneuvered her hands and the picture shifted. She did this again and again and again and Dottie watched as the pictures began to move and the two people depicted began dancing. They flowed and swayed, dresses floating with each movement. It was one of the most beautiful things Dottie had ever seen. She wiped a tear from her eye, smiling. The two wrote back and forth quite a lot over the coming weeks. They would always pass these letters back and forth in the tea kettle. Both of the goddesses' rooms became plastered with these letters. Eventually, Kole asked to meet. She said she wanted to visit Doty on her island. This shook Doty. She was ashamed of her job at her home amongst the waste. She did not want Kale to see the decrepit world she inhabited. She did not tell Kale this. She did not tell Kale anything. She did not write back, not knowing what to say. This was the first week that there was no dance for her subjects. Kale, not knowing what had happened to Doty, waited nervously for a return letter, but it never came. Kale was never the kind of person to give up. She gathered some wood and made a raft. She set this raft in the ocean and rode the currents to the island of waste. It took her several days, but she eventually arrived. The workers, not prepared to find living beings in the garbage, were very startled. Kale asked where Doty was. The subject said they had not seen her for weeks and that the last several dances had been cancelled. Kale nodded then strode over to the ballroom. It was empty and the floors were dusty. Even though she stood on an island of garbage, it looked cluttered, neglected. Kole shivered. The room was imposingly cold. She could see the potential for the beauty she imagined, but the room was lifeless without the cheer of dance and song. That was when she heard something fall over behind her. Kale turned her head. The mortal Ira was picking up a knocked-over plywood cello. Kale approached Ira, who stumbled backward at the sight of the stranger. Kale asked if he could play the cello. Ira nodded. Kale took a soft step forward. Can you play this? And she hummed a tune to the musician. It was a gentle melody, quiet but persistent. Ira played the tune on the cello. Notes echoed through the hall. After a few moments, Doty stormed from her room. She did not order anyone to start playing. She was trying to rest. She threw open the door at the top of the ballroom. She froze. There, in the middle of the scuffed, dull room, was Kale. She was as radiant as any of her lights, smiling and swaying to the song. Doty was not in her infamous dress. She was in rags. Her hair did not flow past her shoulders. It was knotted and clumped. Her smile was not one of pure joy. It was the kind of smile that follows a deep cry. 
she stepped down the curving stairway. It was not the elegant gait Carly had seen before. It was more like falling, each foot desperately reaching for the step beneath it. Doty moved like this until she found herself in Carly's arms. The two held each other for the first time, swaying to the gliding cello. The warmth didn't come from the glass, but from each other. As they moved, Kale turned her face into the warmth of Doty's neck. It was better than anything she could have imagined. You just listened to Newton's Dark Room Presents Main Street Mythology. The legend Ava and the Great Worms was performed by Mike Emling. Ivium in the Internet was performed by Robert Reedy. And Kale and Dodie was performed by Elise Crawwick. All the music you heard was created for the show by La Troyenne. You can find more of La Troyenne's music on Spotify, iTunes, or at latroyenne.bandcamp.com. Visit our website at newtonsdarkroom.com for Julia Sawbones' journal notes and illustrations, as well as transcripts, downloads, and information on the collective. Main Street Mythology was written by Julia Sawbone, with story editing by Augie Pepnia and Kira Warner. Sound editing by Sampra Pepnia. Music by La Troyenne. Illustrations digitized by Trent Stradley. Special thanks to Raymond Tu, Luis Diaz, Caitlin Smith, Fuzzy, Patnat, and our good friends over at the Carlotta Botox Chronicles for supporting Newton's Dark Room on Patreon. If you sign up for our Patreon before May 28th, then you too can have your name read during the credits of Main Street Mythology. According to a report by Westwood One, 60% of podcast listeners discover new shows through word of mouth. If you like Main Street Mythology, tell a friend or post about it on social media. You can even tag us on Twitter or Instagram at Newton's Dark Room, and we'll be sure to stop by and say hi. Thank you for making it through to the end of the credits. As a reward, here is one story that didn't make it into the series. Hakold is the god of showers. He is the one in charge of the temperature that comes out of your shower heads. Unfortunately for us, he is a scornful god filled with rage and malice. Because of this, we are constantly either burned or frozen when trying to clean ourselves. There isn't too much we can do except offer our bits of soap to the drain in hopes that this will appease Hakold. Thank you for listening. Next week is our final episode of Main Street Mythology, and it's going to be a little shorter. It tells just one story, but it's an important and impactful story, so we figured it deserved its own episode. Thank you, and we'll see you next week. Produced by Newton's Dark Room.